The parable of the Good Samaritan. Let's pick it apart at the first verse. Can you go back to that? We see the, uh, the setup, the whole uh, like location, where it's at, uh, here just in the ver- first verse. On one occasion, an, an expert in the law stood up to test Jesus. They're in some sort of like either a house or they're at the temple, and uh, they're in a group of people. This, this expert in the law, some translations call, call them lawyers, and um, he's standing up in an attempt to challenge Jesus in a debate. And uh, we, we know he's got to be with people because the only reason someone's going to challenge Jesus in a debate is so they will look good in front of other people. So in essence, he's trying to make himself look good and trying to get Jesus to look bad. An honor, shame, confrontation, if you will. And uh, it's interesting where this parable, like Luke just throws this parable in, um, in, the, in Luke 10. Like he, he's talking about like several things and the way Luke does it in this area, I looked within like, several chapters of this and he goes from talking about like Jesus on his way to Jerusalem. So this is Jesus on his death march to Jerusalem. So it's, it's um, honor-shame confrontation. In the Middle East, their culture is honor-shame. Our culture is more guilt, uh, whatever, but their culture is, they try to um, get higher status by honoring uh, themselves in light of, in front of other people. So, so he asked Jesus, teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Now, this is a question that would have been uh, asked. It was a common question and something that um, they would do often with uh, rabbis, um, debate, and uh, just that question, how do I get eternal life? That's something that was often talked about. And uh, Jesus does a common thing here. Um, What is written in the law? Is what Jesus responds. How do you read it? He turns the question back on the uh, expert in the, in the law. So the expert will have to answer it himself. This was what they did a lot. And um, being that, that the expert in the law was you know, in debate, was used to these things, I'm sure, I, I didn't read this anywhere, but I do not doubt that he had this answer ready. Like, he wouldn't go out, because if he didn't have it ready, he would look like a fool. What's up, Ryan? Uh, how, come, how come Jesus didn't say, oh, you have to accept me in your heart in order to receive eternal life? He just said, love the Lord your God, your heart's and mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. It seems like more of actions than just like a prayer. What, in essence, is happening here? What is written in the law? Jesus is taking the guy back to the law in the Old Testament. And Deuteronomy 6.5 says... Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength. And then Leviticus. Do not seek revenge or, hear, uh, or bear a grudge against one of your people, but love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. Yeah. He's taking it to the law because now that this guy has answered this way, like this is where it comes in uh, why he's like, I need to justify myself. Because he can't, he can't live that way. He cannot fully love the Lord his God with all of his heart, mind, soul, and strength. And he cannot fully love his neighbor as himself. We can't do that. We're sinners. 
That's why he's looking at this and trying to justify himself. Because he knows he lacks that. He knows that he falls short of that. He's going into like defensive and like trying to find a loophole in what Jesus is saying. Well, in what the law says. He wanted to justify himself, so he asks, and who is my neighbor? I mean, you can't get around loving God. There's only one God. He's not going to ask, who is my God? So he goes for this one, who is my neighbor? Like, just trying to get Jesus to say something, to give a definition where he can find a way around it. In reply, Jesus said, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho. Now, this path from Jerusalem to Jericho is a long path. It's like 17 miles. It was uh, something that they would travel fairly often, and it was actually pretty steep. Somewhere between 3,000 and 3,900 foot uh, difference in uh, elevation, that is. I read several different ones. I read 3,000, 3,300, and then I read another one that said Jerusalem's 2,600 above sea level and Jericho's 1,300. I don't know. Pick one. Either way, 3,000 feet minimum elevation difference. This thing's steep. It's windy. There's lots of crevices, lots of places where robbers could hide and jump out and just, well, do what they did to this guy. Beat you and run. So... Uh, when it, he, this guy fell into the hands of robbers, they stripped him of his clothes, beat him, and went away, leaving him half dead. The half dead thing is very important here. Because when someone's half dead, they are a mangled mess. And most likely, they're unconscious. So if you see them on the ground, you're going to wonder, you know, is this person still alive? Um, that's pretty important for what happens right here now with, these, with the priest and the Levite. A priest happened to be going down the same road, and when he saw the man, he passed by on the other side. So too a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. Now the reason a priest and a Levite might pass by on the other side of the road is, um, well, on, on the other side, it was even known amongst Pharisees that um, they wouldn't want even their shadow to touch a corpse. Because the thing was, priests and Levites and stuff, dead bodies were, were defiled. They were unclean. And to touch them means they would become unclean. So the Pharisees thought even if their shadow touched the, the dead body, they could possibly become unclean. Therefore, that's probably why they went on the other side of the road. It, it's got to be really annoying just so you know, if you're a priest, um, to go through that whole cleansing process. If you see someone dead, like really you can't do anything for them. So that, it, it's understandable if he thought he was dead. I mean, he could have taken the chance to, to even stop, but he didn't. He just goes around. And we don't, we don't, we don't know if, if he saw or whatnot. But um, we know he didn't want to stop and have compassion in check. Because this guy is scared that he's going to get unclean. He's going to um, have to go through the cleansing process, uh, sacrifice some bird or something, and uh, wash his clothes. And there's this huge, long process that they have to go through to become clean again. 
and a Levite, it's not quite as stringent. However, uh, they too would have to go through a process. The thing is here, these guys are going away from Jerusalem. It says they were going down the road. And with that, that means they're going away from the temple. So they're not even, like if they're going towards the temple and they were to become unclean, they can't go in the temple. They can't go in there to do their jobs. Uh, priests can't go in to, to do the sacrifices for the people and all that stuff. You can't because he's unclean. And a Levite couldn't go in to, to do his part in serving in the temple because that's what Levites did because he'd be unclean. However, they're going away from the temple. Um, at least that's what it seems to imply. So they just didn't want to deal with this whole process of getting unclean. Now, but a Samaritan. Something I found very interesting is that word but. That word but, and I I didn't see this in any of the commentaries or anything I read, but the word but, it's a negating word. And I checked in a ton of different translations, and it's there except for like the New Living and the Message, you know, which are not as... Anyways, we won't get into that. Um... But the word but is a negating word. And with that, whatever came before it is no more. Like, it doesn't matter anymore at all. So the fact that there was a priest and that there was a Levite, it doesn't matter anymore whatsoever. They didn't do anything. But they're gone. A Samaritan. Now, this would have struck the hearts. It would have struck the hearts of the listeners, because these are Jews listening in on this conversation, and, and they hate Samaritans. They look at Samaritans, and they think they are, uh, they are dogs. They, see them, they would rather hang out with a Gentile, because they're, they, th- they call them half-breeds. They don't like them at all. They, they like, Samaritan, like, there's a... A straight shot from Jerusalem to, I forget what's on the other side. But if you do the straight shot, you go through Samaria. But they would rather go around the city of Samaria, a longer jaunt, and uh, taking way more time just to avoid these people. They hated them. So now Jesus brings a Samaritan, someone they would despise, into the picture. And it says, as he traveled, came where the man was. And when he saw him, he took pity on him. Most likely, this guy who was beat up was a Jew. That's is assumed in the story. Um, so for a Samaritan, who would also most likely hate Jews, because when there's that such a severe hatred from one side, it tends to be a retaliatory hatred, and they don't like each other. It's just they don't. So for a Samaritan, then, to take pity on someone he would hate normally, and who normally most likely would not help him at all if he was in the same position. For a Samaritan to do that, that cuts deep. That becomes powerful. That takes away, like, if it was, for example, if it was just a lesser Jew than a priest or a Levite, then they could say, oh, that's the priestly order. But Jesus takes away any excuse by bringing a Samaritan into the picture. He went to him and bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Oil and wine were commonly used for um, 
medical purposes for cleansing wounds and whatnot. Uh, Then he put the man on his own donkey, took him to an inn, and took care of him. The next day he took out two silver coins and gave them to the innkeeper. The two silver coins, that's approximately two days' worth of uh, wages. Two full days' worth of wages. It's a good amount of money. Look after him, he said, and when I return, I will reimburse you for any extra expenses you may have. This guy goes above and beyond. He doesn't just take care of him. He, he makes sure that he's well. He makes sure he's taken care of. He goes above and beyond the call of duty. He gets him to a safe place. He really loves on the man. Now Jesus ends his little parable with a question. He makes the expert define what is it to be a neighbor. Which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of robbers? So now the expert in the law has to, has to give his opinion, has to tell what it is to be a neighbor. And the expert in the law replied, the one who had mercy on him. And Jesus told him, go and do likewise. That's so powerful. The one who had mercy on him. You know, I, I, I was, something I found interesting with just the one who had mercy on him, he, he didn't say the Samaritan. <laughs> he wouldn't say the word Samaritan. He just says the one who had mercy on him. I mean, that's a good answer. And uh, Jesus says, go and do likewise. Jesus gives this man no loophole. No loophole. And he doesn't give, an, give him a definition either. I'm talking about the expert of the law. He, he doesn't give this man a definition He gives him a way of life. That's what this parable is about. A way of life. Loving on those who need help. Taking care of the needy whenever they come across our path. And even maybe going out and finding them. Maybe putting people in your path to take care of. That's what this is about. At first, it's a debate and honor and shame and trying to look good, and then the guy's trying to find loopholes. And Jesus just turns it around and says, this is a way of life. This is who we are to be. I speak about this today because a lot of this I hadn't heard growing up. No one spoke about the, the priest and the Levite and all this stuff, and I just found it very interesting and thought I would take the opportunity to share. So, any questions about any of it? I want to go back to Ryan's question. Cool. Why Jesus doesn't answer with, like when he says, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Which is, I think, what your question was. Were you expecting him to say, John 3.16? Yeah, for God I mean, so loved the world. That isn't that the whole point of like Christianity? It's like, oh, you have to believe and accept them into your heart and repent. He didn't say repent, and he didn't say, oh, you have to believe in the Son of God. He just said, go and do this, love your neighbor as yourself. It was the time too when they were like looking for any reason to to nab him, right? So yeah, he, this guy he, wasn't. He's walking on eggshells too. That's why he's uh-huh. answering questions. He questions and being very sort of like covert about certain things because it's like, yeah. What do you think? 
Yeah, this guy, he doesn't ask this question, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Because he wants an answer. He wants to trap Jesus in his words. And Jesus just turns it back on him and traps the guy in his own words. But we've started to lose that the whole series, which is Jesus wants to be so clear and his message to be so tight that people can understand it. Why did he speak in parables in the first place? That's been like the overarching theme that we've been following. And we've seen in a couple places that Jesus actually intentionally hid the truth from certain people. So that's why I want to start with that question that you threw out because a lot of us have heard the parable of the Good Samaritan, but that's a really poignant question to ask about the text itself because it seems like in other parables we've studied, he's teaching about different aspects of the kingdom or money or whatever. Here someone's asking him straight out, like, let's get to the bottom line of the Old New Testament. How do I get eternal life? And he starts talking about this thing. Well, to me it sounds like, like nowadays, it, like to inherit eternal life, it's just like, oh, accept Christ in your heart and you, you're saved by grace and the Lord will love you. And here it's like, be like the good Samaritan, which is someone that people hated, but he still did good. You know, so it's almost like, okay, well, you know what? What you believe is a bunch of crap because you need to do something about it. You know, if you're not doing anything about it, then maybe you might not be saved. There's definite tension. Yeah. Dude, you're, you're looking at the verse that says, uh, Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. But it was really the other guy that kind of, you kind of disregarded the first half of that. Right? He asked, What is your neighbor? You know, so, so the whole parable of the, the Samaritan is only covering a little bit of you know what's required for salvation, and you're missing the whole first half. So you can't you can't say, well, if I'm like the Samaritan, then I'm going to you know have salvation because you're ignoring the love of God. I mean, I think as as Christians, it's like people don't think that you're a Christian unless you say the prayer. You know, period. Like it's the way that it is. You know. Then how do you save somebody? Like how does God do you usually go, hey man, you I, know what? I would say that it's your repentance which starts in prayer. But I don't know, something that I've kind of come to the conclusion of is that I'm still in the process of being converted. Like that I'm not saved yet. Like God saves me every day. Like the blood of Jesus cleanses me every day. It's his grace every day that allows me to draw near to the throne room and seek repentance and seek power to live unto his glory. If you're going to love God, the way you have to love God is to love other people. And then true religion is this, to take care of the widows and the orphans. And um, Jesus says, I'm going to throw you out where there is weeping and gnashing of teeth unless I can look at you and ask you on judgment day when I was hungry, when did you feed me? When I was thirsty, when did you give me drink? So I think part, like, part of the entire the salvation message continues to go back to your neighbor continues to go back to you love God by how you love those in the world, how you love those around you. I think what you're hitting on is really important because first you're right to come at it in humility because we don't know everything. We're not going to understand the infinite God in our finite minds, even in our finite words and scripture that he's given to us. And I, the reason this tension comes up all the time is because we're always trying to figure out where are we on the continuum of grace where he says, Mike, you know, like, this is something you don't earn, you can't do, you just have and you accept. And then you start on that road, which you say is a journey, and I agree, towards becoming Christ-like. 
And I think it's really a matter of terminology. We in a church confuse when we talk about salvation and saved. First of all, we're speaking in an English language that wasn't the original text, and we're confusing a lot of words that people just throw in together. I think there is a point in all of our lives that's very biblical where we come to a knowledge of Christ and we understand who he is and ask him to become the Lord of our life. But that's like you said, like the beginning. I really believe that's enough to be, I don't even want to use the word saved. <laughs> I'm trying to avoid it. You've now met the entrance requirements of what Christ says, I'm the way and the truth and the life. So you've at least found your way to him. But there's a life that follows. And it's a life of becoming Christ-like. A lot of it has to do with repentance, true change of our heart, where you start to grieve sin, not because of the consequence, but because you understand that you violate the very living God's sovereignty. And that's what, one reason why the expert in the law chose the neighbor, because he knows he can't love the Lord his God with all his heart, because God knows the motives that we live by. You know, and I may do a good work, but it's because, oh, by the way, I did this good work. Well, it, it, it doesn't glorify God at all, and it's part of that journey, and that's why he chose to do the easy one of, in my mind, you can love your neighbor easier. It's easier to love your neighbor who you don't even like than it is to love God with all your heart and just sell out to him totally. That, you know, this debate has been going on recently. Christians have been asking Bono, the lead singer of U2, for many, many years, whether he's a Christian or not, he's almost refused to answer the question. He's answered it in his own mysterious ways, almost speaking in parables half the time. But one of the things that bugs the church is they want him to come right out and say, this is what I believe, and he wants to, they want him to preach repentance and, and like have altar calls, basically. And he's criticized that, first of all, that whole concept, and he's also criticized people because of this parable, that he asks people how much we love our neighbors in the world, and he criticizes the church as a whole body for not doing enough in the world. And that's an interesting question, because if you look at him, he seems to like love neighbors a lot, but he's kind of quiet on the more doctrinal issues. Whereas the church is very loud on the doctrinal issues and kind of absent in a James kind of way on doing things. Who's right? I don't know. I mean, who's right? Yeah. Uh, if you continue on in First John right now, you're talking about this verse applies, right? And what we're talking about, um, these things I've written to you, well, the things he's writing about, um, and this is the testimony, that God has given us eternal life, and this life is in his Son. He who has the Son has life. Not have the Son of God does not have life. These things I have written to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, that you may know you have eternal life, you know you have eternal life, and that you may continue to believe in the name of the Son of God. So it's kind of like you're saying that we, we can know that we have that life, but it, right. there is that aspect of continuing on and believing in the Son of God that He is our life. Sure. And his and even the words of James too and others, what they're really saying is you can have that salvation but it's kind of hollow if that's all you have, if you don't. I don't think they're saying you can earn your way. I don't think they can say that like true religion is anybody who does good things for orphans and widows. I believe that that's the starting point, but it just kind of rings hollow. And here's a guy who was pretty hollow in his belief, because he could recite it, 
That's why I really think Jesus' words translated could almost have been, you know, like, okay, you gave me the right definition. 